All right. Well, I thought we would begin this morning's message with a little self-reflection. And in doing so, my goals are just pretty simple. My goals are just one, that we would do a little self-reflection and we leave walking out those doors with just a little increased desire and enthusiasm to serve our king. Okay? And the second goal is that as we're studying scripture this week and as we're hearing from the Lord, that we would have more enthusiasm to be doers of the word. What we're being taught that we actually do it and we're not just hearers only. So please take a moment to fill in the blank here. Answer these things, if you don't mind, when they pop up on the screen silently in your own mind. You don't have to speak them out loud. If you want to know what everybody else, if you want to let everybody else know what you're thinking, that's what Facebook is for. But here, <laughs> let's just answer these quietly in our mind, right? And let's start off with the first question, fill in the blank. In 20 years, I hope I am blank. In 20 years, I hope. And I know how some of you think, don't think, just still alive. That's, we're, not, we're not thinking that. Don't think. Uh, but in this current environment, that might be appropriate. But that's just surviving. That's not living. You know, living for Christ is having some goals and, and going somewhere. So I'm asking you to think years from now, where will I be besides just a couple of years older? You know, there's, <clears throat> there's an ancient proverb from one of history's wisest men, Yogi Berra, catcher from the New York Yankees. Okay, Yogi said, if you don't know where you're going, you might end up somewhere else. <laughs> Think about where we're going. Next question, fill in the blank. 10 to 20 years ago, I expected to be... Hmm. If you're young, you can cut that number in half, but it's important to look back at the decisions we've made that have brought us to where we are in life right now. And as you do it, you know, as I do, that it could be somewhat painful because we're going to uncover and we're going to see some bad decisions, but we're also going to see some good decisions in our lives. And these are things that we can share with others as we're growing in our walk with the Lord. And last one, someday I hope to be remembered for blank. That's called your legacy. What do you hope to leave for future generations when you're gone? Because you know we're not going to be on this earth forever. And I ask you these questions this morning because I was bouncing around some of these thoughts in my brain over the past couple weeks as I was leading up to my 30th anniversary with Tina, thinking the past 30 years, wow, you know, where'd they go? And what's, what have we been, the, the decisions and the, and the life situations that led us to where we are now. And I got to thinking about the next 30. And it was real easy to do so, especially where we went for our anniversary. We went to the Mountain House at Lake Mohonk, New York. And here's a picture of it. Beautiful, beautiful. This was from a hill, a mountain, actually overlooking the lake where the mountain house sat. And it's like time freezes when you're up there. It's like time just stopped. There's no TV in any of the hotel rooms. Um, Tina, Tina and I didn't watch TV for a whole week, and that was refreshing and great. And so you're out in nature nonstop, every day, and you just think, right? You just think about life. And I, I think about, thought about questions like, is my life making a difference for the kingdom? When I took this job five years ago, over five years ago, what did I expect? Where is my life going? What's the Lord want me to do a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, ten years from now? Where's my life going? How do I make my life count for the king? Well, there's a passage in 2 Samuel where we read about three men who made their lives count 
for the king. Now, the two Samuels together, 1 and 2 Samuel, explain how God chose David and his descendants to be the rightful kings of Israel. And this is very important, right, that, David, that we learn this because we learn that the Messiah comes from, from the line of David. He is an offspring of David or a son of David. And 2 Samuel shows how this comes to be, and it's really it's an interesting book. And it's kind of typical of this Hebrew narrative because we're going to start in chapter 23, but that's actually an epilogue or that begins an epilogue that's actually kind of like a summary of the whole First and Second Samuel. So the writer here is now looking back. He was going chronologically through First and Second Samuel, you know, through Samuel and then Saul, the first king, and then David. But now he kind of stops and he looks back and he wants to include a few more stories that will honor God and show his faithfulness to the people of Israel. And the story we're going to examine today, this morning, is found in chapter 23 of 2 Samuel. It focuses on some of the men who stood by David's side when he needed them the most, and they're called his mighty men. The story starts in verse 8, but again, this is reflecting back. So it it takes place actually early in David's reign, somewhere between chapters 5 and 8, if you're interested, after David replaced Saul as king, before they took control of the whole region and before his sin with Bathsheba. David, as Jake alluded to a little bit, David had armies of thousands, right? And and from the moment he picked up that sling that Jake mentioned and walked down into that valley and defeated the giant till the time David couldn't walk anymore, he was fighting Warrior. He was a warrior. Battles were a major theme of his life. And many brave men fought beside David throughout, those life, throughout his life for almost 50 years. And David kept a list of those men. They're recorded in 2 Samuel, about 30 of them. And out of that 33, make it to the top of the list. These three guys that we're about to meet are the ones that Israel's greatest warrior king said, If I'm ever going into battle, I want to take Josheb, Eleazar, and Shema with me. They are the ones who made their lives count. We don't read anything about them up to this point in 1 and 2 Samuel. But you know they fought with David for a really long time. And here in the final summary chapter, looking back, almost forming a highlight reel, we see why these three guys are Hall of Fame material. The first up is Josheb. 2 Samuel 23.8. We read, These are the names of David's mighty warriors. Josheb, Bashibath, a Tachamanite, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. So what kind of warrior was Josheb? Once upon a time, an Israeli lookout might have run up to him and said, Josheb. There's an army of 800 invaders coming at us. What are we going to do? And Josheb said, get me my spear. (laughs) He was ferocious. Remember, that's not the only thing he did. This is the narrator's way of saying, here's an example of who this man was. And and during this, this time, during the early reign of Saul and David's reign, Israel did not have control over the area. So Philistines and other other enemies would invade their territory and would terrorize them and steal and pillage from the Israelites. And in this particular case we just read about, 
there was only one thing that stood between some Israelite safety and an army of 800 invaders, and that was Josheb and his trusty spear. He was the first of the mighty men. On to verse 9. Next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai, the Aohite. As one of the three mighty warriors, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Paz Damim for battle. Then the Israelites retreated. But Eleazar stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eleazar, but only to strip the dead. So what kind of warrior was Eleazar? Strong, brave, loyal. Two things we need to know about Eleazar. And this is further laid out, if you're interested and want to take a note, in 1 Chronicles chapter 11. But apparently this event occurred when David and his men were on the run. Guess who was chasing them? The Philistines. The enemy was closing in, and David decided to make his stand in a barley field. And as David and his men are in the barley field, they see the Philistines approaching. David's men, seeing that they're vastly outnumbered, they retreat. It was just David and Eleazar. They stood like Gandalf on the bridge to Kazakhdom and said, You shall not pass. And they didn't. By the time the rest of the Israelites recognized that David and Eleazar were missing and returned to the scene of the battle to pick the spoils off the dead bodies... And pry Eleazar's hand, sword out of his hand. Now, the names of those men who fled, they're not recorded in this section of the Bible. But Eleazar is. He made his life count by standing with his king. And second, if you want to, can you put that verse back up there? Second, we read that he was Eleazar, son of Dode. The Aoite. Now, to us, that means nothing. But I did learn this week to an ancient Hebrew that meant something. And you know what that meant? That Eleazar was from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, Saul was from the tribe of, of what? Benjamin. David was from the tribe of Judah. That's right. And Saul was constantly hunting down David, and he called on his family members to support him and do that. He was constantly chasing David down. And here, Eleazar, who's from the tribe of Benjamin, from the tribe of Saul, refuses an ungodly command even from a family member. What does that mean? Eleazar likely sacrificed his home, his friends, his family situation to do the right thing here. And no surprise, that's why he is top three in David's list. And finally, verse 11. Next to him was Shema, son of Agi, the Herorite. When the Philistines handed, banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shema took the stand, took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. What kind of warrior was Shema? like Josheb, like Eleazar, steadfast, immovable. Shema chose to stand when everybody else fled. And it was obvious that God was working through him. In fact, even his name Shema would remind people of one of the most important Old Testament passages for an ancient Hebrew, Deuteronomy 6.4. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That verse is called the Shema. Because the first word in Hebrew is pronounced Shema. And it literally means hear or listen and obey. So, if you were, if you were a king and you were leading people into battle, and your life and your kingdom was constantly in jeopardy, how would you like to have one of those three by your side? Well, David had all three. David had all three. And the best part is none of those things that we just talked about, these guys, is what earned them the spot on David's top three of his list of mighty men. That story comes next. That was just their resume. The event that sets them apart from everyone else is recorded in verse 13. And this is how they made their lives count. We read, During harvest time, three of the thirty chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Raphaim. Now let's stop right there. Because it's hard to appreciate really how dire the situation is that we're reading about, unless we have some sort of visual context. So for that, we need to put up a map. Now, on the screen, on the screen is a picture of Israel here. The Philistines controlled the coastal country, represented by that purple area, on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. That was where the Philistines controlled. Israel controlled the hill country to the east or to the right of that purple arrow. The yellow arrow, that's Jerusalem in the northern Um, northern area of Judah. The green arrow is Bethlehem, just a little bit south of Jerusalem. The black arrow there, that's the cave we just read about, cave of Adullam, where David was hiding. And you can see how that's getting kind of close to Philistine country over there, but that's the cave where David's hiding. Now, what do you think is right in the middle between that black arrow where the cave is, where David's hiding, and the yellow arrow representing Jerusalem, the valley of Rephaim? where the Philistines were encamped. What's that mean? From a military standpoint, if you're looking at that map, what's that mean? David's cut off from his people in Jerusalem. David is surrounded. They're at his backside. They're in front of him. David is in big trouble, and he knows it. And to make the matter worse, to taunt him, the enemy has set up headquarters in his hometown of Bethlehem. And as David retreats to the cave, he and his men realize they're outnumbered, They've been outsmarted. David's getting a little nervous. What's going to happen next? When suddenly, one of the lookouts spots three figures making their way to the cave. And how can you imagine how David felt when he realized it was Josheb, Eleazar, and Shema? When these men heard their king was in trouble, they rushed to his aid. And in their mind, they were going to save their king or they were going to die trying. So we get to verse 14 and 15. That's the situation. And we read, at that time, David was in the stronghold and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate at Bethlehem. Now, by examining this situation, one can surmise, but by the time the the three got to David, he was exhausted. He was tired and he was thirsty, low on water. He longs for his hometown. He learns that it's been occupied by the Philistines. And probably, if you heard that, he probably gets a little bit depressed. And he thinks back to the time around Bethlehem when he was just a shepherd boy. 
And he remembers and thinks, wow, it was a lot easier taking care of sheep than it is people. It's a lot easier trying to protect sheep than it is to protect a nation. And he probably thinks back and he longs for the day when he remembers when it was hot and he would come into Bethlehem and he'd see that well and he'd take that refreshing drink after a long, hot day in the sun. And that drink, nobody was chasing him. Nobody was trying to hunt him down. He possibly wonders about some of those questions that we asked earlier, like what events of his life led him up to this moment? Where's where's he going to go now? He might be thinking, what legacy am I going to leave for my family? And wishfully, he says, if only I could have one more drink from that well I used to drink from as a child. So at this point in his life, it seems to me that David is a beaten man. And Josheb and Eleazar and Shema, they seem to realize this too. And they know they've got to do something to show their king that hope is not lost. So continuing with verse 16. So the three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. So can you imagine that scene? Within that, ver- within that verse, a couple days are, is actually unfolding. They were in the cave, and, and Joseph said, might have said something like, now let me get this straight. We just got here. We just got here, and now you want me to travel back through an enemy blockade, 20 miles on foot, you saw the map, through treacherous terrain, overpower the enemy, the Philistines in Bethlehem, draw water from your old well, and bring it back to you without spilling a drop Somebody get my spear. Four things we can learn from these guys regarding making our lives count. Josheb, Eleazar, and Shema were willing to do anything. They were willing to do anything for their king. And anything is an important concept. Because like today in the ancient Near East, there were a lot of easy things to do. For example, these three warriors, it was customary for the king to throw banquets for his best warriors. So you know these three had a banquet, many banquets thrown for them. Feasting, uh, food, music, etc. A good celebration atmosphere. And to attend that for your king, pretty easy. But there's often some hard things to do for your king. Sometimes they put a pretty high calling on your life. Sometimes as a subject of a king, we're forced to make a difficult stand or we're forced to deliver a hard-to-hear message, or we serve at a great personal sacrifice. And those are the times when few count the cost and step up and make their lives count. So, brothers and sisters, as we're thinking about this this morning, this is a good time just to pause, just to think and remind ourselves that if we trust in Christ to save us, if we trust in Christ... To be our Lord and Savior, he is our king. He's our king. And what are we willing to do for him? Are you willing to venture out into enemy territory for him? Are you willing to make disciples for him? The second thing we learn from these mighty men is that they serve their king with courage. And that's not easy to do because fear can be crippling. Here are a couple fears that, I wanted to share with you today. This first one is nomophobia. Do you know what this fear is? Who does? You do? What is it? Yes. Yes. Good job. Well, if you get the next one right, I'll really be amazed. But that was good. Fear of, you're right, fear of not having your cell phone. 
and it's persistent and it's severe and it affects your life. And this is very real for some people, and you can see in this day and age why it might be real. All right, so that's nomophobia. The next one. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Hippopotamonstrosis, quipapildoliophobia. Is that right? Okay. Triple, triple star. Yes, good job. That is the fear of, of, of big words. That's exactly right. Fact-checking fact that one could be a little tough. That's a pretty, pretty long word to type into Google, but that's what it is. It's the fear of long words. And they might seem kind of just a little ridiculous or funny to us, but they're real for people that suffer from those phobias. Josheb, Eleazar, and Shema had fears. They had to face an enemy that was trying to kill them and their king. Today, our fears are different for sure. For some, we fear about the future, especially with everything going on right now. For others, we fear about how people react if we say what we think about a certain situation going on, how we'll be labeled, what their reaction will be. Sometimes we fear how people react if we share with them that I'm a Christian. Sometimes we fear how people react if we share with them the gospel and how God loves them. Well, how do you overcome these type of fears? What are you going to do when you're in a situation where fear grips you? Well, the only way that I know how to find courage and face any one of those fears or others is to do what Josheb, Eleazar, and Shema did. And what did they do? They kept their eye on the king. They kept their focus on the king. Love the Lord God with all your heart. Which brings me to the third point. If you want to make your life count, stay focused on the mission. You will never read about the time when Eleazar said, you know what, guys, we have a lot of reasons why we shouldn't be doing this. Or you never read about the time where Shema said, you know what, guys, we made it through this far. We've got the water from the well. Do we really have to go back? These men didn't stop. They didn't quit. They didn't escape when they had the chance. They didn't abandon their post. In short, these three men that we read about, they weren't living life for themselves. They weren't in this thing for themselves. They were in it to serve their king. Are you? Am I? If Christ is our king, then we have a mission to make disciples. And now more than ever, we need to encourage one another. We need to stay focused and we need to stay together. These men did some amazing things as individuals. And we read about them in verses 8 through 12. But the thing that set them apart, that why they are top three of David's mighty men is what they did together as a team. Because in the words of another one of history's wisest men, this time Solomon, son of David, Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 through 12, we read this. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Do you want to make your life count? Love others. Be part of a group that's determined to love others, 
and stick together like these men did. Some advice and just stick to itness will be always, of course, preaching to the choir, I know, stick with God through thick and thin. Stick with your spouse, right? And stick with your church, right? Nobody makes the Hall of Fame by abandoning ship in a crisis. Well, finally, there is an end to this story. After they bring the water back to David, there's one more twist. Verse 16 continues like this. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. How do you like the way that story ended? These three men battled their way across the valley, snuck into Bethlehem, retrieved the water the king longed for and asked for, fought their way back to the cave, 40, 50 miles round trip. They give it to their thirsty, exhausted king. And he says, I can't drink this. You almost expect one of these three tough guys to say, oh, yes, you can. <laughs> but the last, this last quality here is what makes them great. They accept the will of the king. David realized two things when they returned. First, he realized these three guys risked everything for him. And suddenly he felt not worthy of that. He realized that and felt humbled, not worthy, and decided to offer it to the Lord instead of drinking it. And second, he realized that he wasn't alone, that God had given him everything he needed to overcome the crisis that he was feeling in that cave. Their names were Josheb, Eleazar, and Shema. And we don't know how they did it. We're not given any more details, but somehow their act of going and getting that water inspired their king when David was at one of the lowest moments of his life. And looking back, a little personal reflection, years later when David looked back and asked himself, how did I get here? He realized that when he was at his very worst, God sent him three of his very, very best. Men that were willing to do anything for their king. People who would serve their king with courage. Soldiers who would stay focused on the mission. Brothers who would stick together and accept the will of the king even when they didn't understand it. And David said, put those three at the top of my list. They made their lives count. Well, that's them. That was then. This is now. What about us? We all know that someday we, we all know this. We will stand before the king of kings and give an account of our life. And if we want to make our life count, let's learn from these three men and be willing to serve our king. And for some in our midst, that could mean full-time ministry. And for some in our midst, that could mean part-time ministry, serving our church or elsewhere. I can't speak for you. I can only ask, 20 years from now, where do you want to be? What do you need to do to get there? And we see that whatever you do, you're going to need courage to do it. Courage comes from knowing Christ as your Savior. Courage comes from being in the Bible and the Word of God. Courage comes from prayer and getting strengthened 
through prayer. This will keep us focused on him and his mission because there's many distractions and we know the enemy wants to divide. He doesn't want us sticking together. Finally, remember, things will not always go as we think they should, as we plan for them. God's ways are higher than our ways. Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So, how did you get here? Where are you going? Where will you be in 20 years? What legacy are you going to leave? Let's consider these things this week during our personal walk with the Lord. Let's ask him for wisdom and let's ask him for strength. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this example we see in scripture of three mighty men and a king who wanted to serve you. Father, let us learn from this. Let us give us wisdom so we can decipher when the world's trying to pull us away from you and your kingdom would, would honor and glorify you. Give us strength and courage, Father, to, to do the right thing in those situations where your spirit is leading us and nagging and pulling at us. Give us strength to submit to that and do it. Father, we love you. We all look forward to the day where we can just put our arms around you and your son, serve you forever in your kingdom. Help us serve you now. Give us strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.